everybody. Uh, if you have been watching the news at all this week, uh, you may have noticed friend of the show, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, has been, as they say, taking care of business. Uh, because so much has happened, uh, and as we say, a lot going on, we now have Derek Davison breaking his own record for, I think, what, appearance number eight, Derek? <laughs> I don't know. I've lost count. <laughs> a shit ton. More than anyone else by multiple factors. But I am very happy to have Derek here to talk about uh, the Solomon spree, as we're calling it. Well, thank you. I'm I'm hoping that this podcast will get me arrested by the Saudis so that I can stay in the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton, <laughs> which is apparently what they do with their, their prisoners now. <laughs> yeah, that, I love that. I love that, like, they're in the Ritz-Carlton, but the photos, um, they don't show them sleeping in beds. They're all in, like, a conference room sleeping on the floor. It's very cute. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't, you know, you can't... Uh, treat them too well, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so a little background for people who haven't been following this. Uh, last week, Saad Hariri, the now former prime minister of Lebanon, went to Saudi Arabia, where he's a dual citizen, to announce his resignation because of, well, it, it just, it was, it sounded like someone quitting Twitter because of the toxic atmosphere, kind of. <laughs> it's kind of what it was like. He's like, I'm getting death threats. I don't like this. Not, not good. I'm leaving. He couldn't. He couldn't get on pace, Ben. So he went on Al Arabia instead. <laughs> All right. So, um, a little a little background on that. How would you describe uh, Saad Hariri's relationship with the Saudis, and then his relationship with his own constituency in Lebanon? Right. So Saad Hariri got um, Saad Hariri has now been forced to resign as Lebanese prime minister twice by the Saudis, um, and he really kind of uh, came out of the blue last year to become prime minister again because he worked out this deal <clears throat> with Michelle Aoun, who's the leader of one of the um, Marinist parties, Christian parties, uh, to – and they're in opposing coalitions in the Lebanese parliament. And Hariri agreed to back Aoun – uh, to become president if Aoun would then appoint him prime minister. And this all had to be done because Aoun's in a coalition with, with Hezbollah. So this had to be done with uh, Hezbollah's, you know, assent. You know, th this ended like two years of, of serious uh, political dysfunction in Lebanon where they hadn't had a president that whole time. They, they couldn't, the government wasn't even competent to work out a deal for, garbage removal in Beirut so there was you know river there were rivers of trash flowing down the streets of Beirut for a while uh, it was a real mess um, and of course Lebanon's got you know at least a million and probably considerably more than that Syrian refugees that are uh, squatting you know destabilizing the country uh, just by virtue of being there um, so Hariri you know did this and and maneuvered his way back into the prime minister's position but he's got a lot of exposure uh, in Saudi Arabia he's as you said he's a dual Saudi citizen through his father Rafiq 
Um, and Rafik made his fortune. Hariri's worth like a billion dollars, I think, or over a billion dollars. Uh, and they made their fortune founding a, a construction firm in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, I mean, well, I'm sure we're going to talk about the, the anti-corruption purge in a few minutes here, but um, in the context of what happened later in the day after Hariri resigned, it seems uh, pretty likely or at least very possible that the Saudis uh, threatened him with some time in prison or some, uh, you know, losing his family business. Um, in order to leverage his his resignation, I mean, he's got a he's very vulnerable in that in that sense. Yeah, I mean, the speech was weird, and I remember the reaction like immediately during and after the speech from a, a lot from people that should be that I think the Saudis think should be Hariri's constituency, like a lot of Sunni Lebanese were like, "This has nothing to do with Lebanon. This is a Saudi and Iran thing. This is this is." fucking ridiculous and then right. the weird photo of him in the Ritz Carlton comes <laughs> out and it's oh okay I can see what this is uh, well it's yeah I mean the speech was very strange like just watching him deliver the speech and I, I mean it didn't look like somebody using his own words it looked like somebody who was reading something that another person had written for him to say um, the fact that he resigned in Saudi Arabia, I mean, the prime minister of Lebanon resigns as prime minister in another country on somebody else, on that country's state TV channel, is weird. Um, and the rhetoric that he used was all sort of, you know, straight ripped from the standard list of Saudi complaints about Iran. Like, it, you know, you're right, it was very, very little of it was specific to Lebanon. Now there were, he mentioned a threat on his life, uh, that he, you know, claimed had come from Hezbollah or Iran. And he talked, complained about Hezbollah's, um, role in Lebanese politics, but that's also a complaint that the Saudis make constantly. Um, and then, you know, he also mentioned things like Bahrain and Yemen and, you know, the line about how Iran should stay out of Arab affairs. I mean, this is all like regional stuff that doesn't really have to do with, with Lebanon specifically. Um, and then, after the speech, the obvious, you know, the obvious thing that people were asking was, what does he mean there was an attempt on his life? Because there'd been no news about it. They asked, you know, uh, I think Al Jazeera went, uh, you know, called up Lebanese security officials and they said they had no idea what he was talking about. The only details that you heard initially after his speech came from the Saudis. I mean, it came from Saudi media and, uh, you know, a couple of Saudi yeah, officials. Yeah, all, all Arabia and everything, which right. uh, is, well, I mean, we'll get to Walid soon, but it's now that's the only, like, <laughs> game in town. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it was very, I mean, it's, everything moves so fast now that speech was such an innocent time compared to what we came to know the next day. <laughs> Just a few hours later, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so obviously the Saudis want to kind of make a play, and I've heard – oh, sorry. Before I get to that, I do want to digress for listeners that Saad is a very interesting figure just 
in and of himself. If you've watched footage of him in Lebanese parliament, uh, it seems like he can't read, kind of. <laughs> and the wildest thing about Saad, which is a completely fucking unsubstantiated rumor, I should clarify, that uh, I first heard in very Tom Friedman-esque fashion from a Shia Lebanese cab driver was that he is actually the late King Fahd's son. He's not Rafiq's son. And uh, see, now I've heard that it was Rafiq that was King Fahd's son. So you heard it was Saad, huh? No, what you heard that's Rafiq? Yeah, that's what I, that, that's when I've seen wild. that rumor, it's been uh, about Rafiq. Ah, yeah, I mean, I guess that, well, Awalid bin Talal. Normal, normal family, either Normal way. family, yeah. <laughs> Jesus, fuck. <laughs> God, well, damn. And, and the thing, the thing that made it stick with me after—I mean, I, I didn't hear it from anybody. Like I read it, you know, in some internet forum. So take it for what you will. But if you look at pictures of Fod and Rafiq, uh, there there seems to be a, it seems to me at least to be a very strong resemblance between the two of them. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so what would I've heard some like wild shit about what Saudi Arabia would do. In terms of like Lebanese politics, I even heard somebody say that they're talking with Israel about clearing out F-16 corridors to hit Lebanon, though I think that's very unlikely. Uh, what would their actual move be? Because it seems like they've missed their window on a lot of things. They don't really, they don't really have any, any proxy now that they can use to execute their, their wishes against Hezbollah and Lebanese parliament. What, what do you think their move actually is? Yeah, I mean, I think if there's going to be a military component to this, it won't be clearing out corridors for the Saudis to bomb Lebanon. Israel will just do it themselves. Um, you know, they're, the next Israeli-Hezbollah war is always just right around the corner, it seems like. And it's been, I mean, it's been 10 years, which is longer than a lot of people who watched that region thought it would be. Um so I I think that this is a move that has a couple of end games or end states. One is potentially um, kind of greasing the wheels for Israel to to intervene militarily. And you saw right after Hariri's resignation, who should you know chime in? But uh, Benjamin Netanyahu to say that. Hariri's resignation is proof that Hezbollah is dominating Lebanese politics and Iran is manipulating Lebanon into, you know, it's out becoming its outpost and uh, in the, you know, on the Mediterranean or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it just, you know, more of the same rhetoric you hear from Israel again and again about how, you know, something needs to be, somebody needs to do something about these guys. Um and the idea would be to try, you know, to make Lebanese politics kind of fall apart, which, um, you know, Hariri quitting he puts an end to that, that power sharing arrangement that he made with Alan last year and, and really throws Lebanese politics into a state of chaos, I think. Um, and in doing so, then, you know, you, you would, try to make Hezbollah more toxic to isolate it within Lebanese politics and and uh, you know if there's going to be a military element of this 
you would want to create distance between the Lebanese army and Hezbollah so that you could have Israel invade southern Lebanon to go after Hezbollah and increase the chances that the Lebanese army might stay out of it. Um, Hezbollah is a actually more formidable force, I think, at this point than the Lebanese army. But you know, even so, it would uh, help the Israelis if they could if they could do that. The more likely end game, I think, for the Saudis is that this will become something like Qatar. Uh, you know, they'll cut off their aid to Lebanon, which in and of itself is devastating. Lebanon depends to a huge extent on. Uh, Saudi aid uh, to to keep going, um, and then you know they'll probably try to rope the usual suspects. You know, put the gang together again: the UAE, Bahrain, maybe Egypt. I don't know. Um, to, yeah, you Bahrain, know, to join the them, scrappy do of the GCC. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the UAE, which hilariously at this point seems to be basically controlling Saudi foreign policy. <laughs> Yep. Despite the fact that it's, you know, this little tiny appendage on the Arabian Peninsula. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, like the Otaiba emails that came out, that was, I mean, the thing that everyone talked about was uh, Otaiba's sex parties. But uh, (laughs) the real thing with it seemed to be the way that uh, the Nyans were able to just exert punch way above their weight, which is right fucking fascinating like they seem to have gotten saudi arabia to make the first step on every dumb thing to test the waters and uh to lead the way on everything they want to do it's amazing so after Saad hariri's uh weird vlog uh i'm gonna get to the weird helicopter crash but there was a sweeping uh just a huge sweeping dragnet on uh, several princes. Um, and it seemed to be they got two types of princes. They got, uh, let me pull up my phonetic spelling of the name so I don't fuck this up. Uh, Mutayeb bin Abdullah, right. who was the head of the Saudi National Guard, which, right. a little background on that. The Saudi National Guard, and generally the Saudi military, is was never like a unified force because Faisal saw it like a unified military body as a threat to the 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 crown a lot of the time. So the Saudi National Guard sort of acted as like half militia, half protection racket that would be loyal to a high up prince usually. And uh Prince uh Prince Mutayeb bin Abdullah was the head of the Saudi National Guard. Uh, and he was, he was swept up in this, but the other group seems to be people who opposed the absolutely fucking moronic Saudi vision 2030, which is the vast privatization of the Saudi economy and the tech revolution of Saudi Arabia. But, uh, could you talk a little about that? A little bit about, uh, Al-Walid bin Talal's arrest? Yeah. So, um, Right, as you say, there there's um, this sort of cadre of. On the one hand, there are some princes that um, have you know are fairly prominent within the the Saudi family politically. 
and then there is this this group of very wealthy businessmen. Awalid bin Talal, of course, is um, one of the wealthiest men in the world. Although I think he's lost like three billion dollars since he got arrested. I just read that. Um, he's only he's only worth fifteen billion now. Um, oh, can we start a GoFundMe? <laughs> So, you know, people know him in the West because he's, you know, he is part owner of uh, News Corp and uh, he famously tried to donate money to New York City after 9-11 and Rudy Giuliani rejected his donation. I don't remember. It was, you know, off fucking macho, you know, shit. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, he was picked up. Backer bin Laden, Osama's brother, uh, who was the head of the Saudi bin Laden group. Um, he was arrested um, the, on Monday. The, the owner of Atayar Travel was arrested, another billionaire. Uh, so a lot of guys who were very wealthy and, um, you know, I think probably not all that enthusiastic about Vision 2030 and maybe not enthusiastic about the path of destruction that Mohammed bin Salman has been you know tearing across the Middle East because uh, it's not great for business there was a, a story I read uh, I can't remember if it was on Al Jazeera or Reuters but there was a, a rumor that uh, Al Walid had refused to invest you know some significant portion of his wealth back in the Saudi economy, which is, I mean, you know, which is hurting because oil is trading at about half the price that it would need to for the Saudis to break even. Um, So, you know, there may have been some pressure to um, put on him to to try and float things a little bit, and he refused. Um, And the political end of this is almost more interesting to me. We can talk about that, the the sort of clearing of the decks for Mohammed bin Salman. Um, but the economic end, I think you're looking at a country that's kind of scrambling right now. I mean, Vision 2030 is, ca- you know, it's sort of portrayed as this ambitious, uh, forward-thinking move to... to uh, transform the Saudi economy, but it's reactionary, just like most of the things the Saudis do. It's reactionary to the fact that oil prices are low and they're probably not coming back up. And the fact that the Saudis are eventually going to run out. I mean, we don't know how much they have left in reserves. Um, there's a, a, an increasing belief that they've passed their peak oil uh, reserve point. Um, so, you know, eventually that's going to be gone and they're sort of scrambling to find a, a way to maintain wealth, um, while at the same time, I mean, there's going to be a component of this that involves cuts and it's going to be some painful cuts to people, you know, sort of the average Saudi citizen who depends on, um, the, the cradle-to-grave welfare system that they've put together with their oil money and also has been 
kind of bought off from expecting things like, uh, you know, having the right to say what you want and having the right to assemble yeah. where you want and, you know, things that, you know, are taken for granted to some extent in the West, but that the Saudis don't have, but that they've sort of traded away passively in return for being, you know, given a portion of this previously vast oil wealth that isn't suddenly isn't so vast anymore. I don't think you can discount the 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 possibility at least that you know a lot of these guys probably did have things going on that we would call corrupt. Um, but you know my thought as you know this has been going on has been I don't really know what counts as corrupt in Saudi Arabia. Like I don't know what the standard is for corruption in a country that's run by a single family that just basically hoovers up oil money out of the out of the country like that all seems corrupt to me to begin with so i don't i don't know what it is that these guys did that um goes beyond that but it's certainly possible that they you know were engaged in some shady stuff yeah um well, the State Department has said, has now come out tonight and said if the Saudis are going after corrupt officials, that's good. So uh, rest assured it's legit. <laughs> um, the There are two other pieces of the puzzle that happened uh, amidst all this. Um, I think that the, the Houthi missile attack on uh, Riyadh – has been pretty well discussed. I know that on your the podcast you did for uh, and that's the way it was on your Patreon, which we'll link. You talked about how they're using it. They said they're not literally going to go to war with Iran because, also, as you said, Saudi Arabia, uh, like any bad comedian, never punches up. Uh, they're not going to go to war with Iran. You know what fucking military they're going to do that with? They're using the words. You know this is an act of war of Iran, but. Could you explain right. explain why, uh, as you did, it's probably not Iran supplying the Houthis that missile? <clears throat> yeah, I mean everything that I've seen about this about that missile launch says that it was uh, what's called a Burhan two, uh, which is a missile that the Yemeni military had. I mean everybody knows that the Yemeni military had it, um, and one by the way that I don't think anybody has suggested the Iranians have. Um, and the Yemeni, I mean, the the rebels, the Yemeni rebels have not only been able to break into military stockpiles, but like half of the rebel coalition, it's not just the Houthis. The the other half of the rebel coalition is people who were loyal to Ali Abdullah Saleh, the former president of Yemen. Um, and included in that is a, a pretty big chunk of the Yemeni military. Uh, that came along, you know, that decided to go over to to him when he uh, made his deal with the Houthis to to rebel. Um, so you know, you've got they've got definite access to the country's pre-war military stockpiles, which included uh, missiles that are plenty capable of hitting Riyadh or you know getting close enough to Riyadh to freak everybody out. So it's it's a case where there's an assumption that it was Iran supplying these missiles because 
that's convenient for a lot of people to make. It's convenient for the Saudis to make that assumption. It's convenient for the Americans to make that assumption uh, because it, you know, once again lets us portray Iran as the ultimate evil in the world. Um, but there's no reason to to make it. I mean, unless you have some hard evidence that this was an Iranian missile that they somehow smuggled into Yemen and, and handed off to the rebels, there's no reason to invent uh, the, uh, that connection because we know there are plenty of easier ways that the the rebels could have gotten a hold of that weapon. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I guess the uh, writers of this season, they, they were doing the Game of Thrones thing where uh, it's always uh, the penultimate episode of the season where everything happens. Uh, <laughs> there was a very normal helicopter crash. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the son of uh, former Crown Prince Mukrin was killed in a totally coincidental and accidental helicopter crash on uh, Sunday. Yeah, I'm just making uh, steamed hams. It sounds like a helicopter being disabled. <laughs> oh, okay. I yeah, heard, it's, you is know. It, is it confirmed that uh, Mukrin himself, the former crown prince himself, also died? Because I saw conflicting things about that. I haven't heard that. As far as I know, he's still alive. But uh, no, and in fact, the Saudi Gazette yesterday says uh, that King Salman visited Prince Mukran to pay his respects on the unfortunate and totally accidental yeah. death of his son. <laughs> well, so... <laughs> to the extent that Salman's even aware that any of this is going on. Do you think on. Salman even knew who he was visiting? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. Normal family. Normal I can't family. wait. I can't wait for, you know, when... Uh, so whatever weird thing comes out whenever they're like, yeah, we sabotaged the helicopter. We did this. We did that. And Mohammed bin Salman is almost definitely – he's going to do the reverse of Trump throwing Jared under the bus. He's going to be like, this was all my father's uh, woeful machinations. I, I, I kind of want to talk about Mutayab a little bit more because he's the most interesting name to be caught up in all this to me. He, the reason he's interesting to me is because I think he was a genuine potential rival to Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and much like the last genuine rival to Mohammed bin Salman, who was Mohammed bin Nayef, who they forced out of, you know, as crown prince in June, um, Mutayev was forced out as the head of the National Guard and then arrested in this anti corruption sting. So, you know, he had, he, got canned and then immediately had his name dragged through the mud. Not unlike what they did with Mohammed bin Nayef, where he got canned and then all of a sudden, you know, you start to have Saudi sources talking to the press about his drug addiction, which was kind of an open secret for a while, but wasn't something that, you know, you had leaks out of the royal family you know, telling reporters about this. So I think there are parallels here in the, the attempt to sideline um, a potential... Uh, you know, throw as you say to throw them under the bus to throw these potential rivals to uh, the crown prince under the bus. Why would why would they go through the trouble of killing the younger Mukrin as opposed to arresting him like they did with everyone else? Yeah, I don't know. Um, and you know, I mean, it's speculation that they that this was deliberate. It seems like it fits a pattern of behavior and a pattern of events, but. I don't know this guy. He was only a deputy governor, I think, of oh, deputy governor of Asir. Okay, of Asir province. So he wasn't even like a 
a major prince. So I, I yeah, it's not uh, it's not clear to me what would have singled him out for you know having to be assassinated instead of just arrested. Well, uh, I feel like you know. If he was assassinated, it was for something probably extraordinarily petty. That could be. I mean, it. it uh, you, you just you just don't know with these guys. You just don't know. It, it's a, it's an interesting time to be watching Saudi Arabia because I feel like they're transitioning from one kind of absolute monarchy to another, and it's you know this sort of corporate family style of governing versus investing all power in in one guy he's done an effective job i think you know as much as he's fucked up everything else he's tried he's done a pretty effective job of cutting out and uh dealing with his potential rivals within the family um but who knows who knows yeah the thing that i've i've noticed i know that the invoke thing is to now say that uh muhammad bin Salman is acting like putin that's the very smart uh, Brookings take that I've seen. <laughs> oh my God. He's the first Putin was the first to- absolute dictator in in world history. So yeah, <laughs> definitely the model. Uh, it's amazing. But, um, but the confluence I do see, like when you look at Saudi 2030 and then you look at like not their insane bullshit that they're proposing, but the stuff they're actually doing, cutting back expenditures, privatizing certain state services – it does look a lot like Russia in the 90s. And uh, not to say that uh, Vladimir Putin was the first autocratic ruler in the world or that just seeing him on TV, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, he had uh, he, uh, he was like uh, Baron Trump looking at the Kathy Griffin photo shoot and decided to be a tyrant. <laughs> but it, it, it does seem like we're getting – it's a similar playbook as we've seen, which is – you the the previous system falters um, enough consulting agencies and uh, and other countries come in and see that there's a grift to be made and then the fault lines the fault lines that were always there that are aggravated by rampant grift and uh, people fighting over scraps and people fighting over the future of this very weird country and demanding total control. You, it's sort of like the oligarch wars of the '90s. It's this very murky thing where we don't really know what's going on, but it seems like different organs of the state and Saudi business, which is kind of a little bit inseparable, are uh, are plotting against each other. But one guy—the only difference is one guy is just promptly wiping everybody out right yeah i think that the difference would be putin sort of emerged out of the mess that was created with the you know privatization yeah. and the um you know the the boys from brazil coming in and fucking the country up um whereas you know mohammed bin salman is really kind of driving it um, yes. Yeah. You know, he's come come into the picture much earlier in the process than than Putin did. Yeah. Um. Like it seems like he's in some ways he's very promptly yeah clearing the deck for his ascension. But the thing about Salman that his or Mohammed bin Salman, not King Salman, that has been weird to me is 
well, A, a lot of the stuff he does is kind of like un-Saudi. It's a huge departure from how the kingdom has previously acted for decades. Like going into Yemen is a complete – you know, if this was a TV, it, it's like watching season 27 of The Simpsons. You go, oh, this character <laughs> never does this. Uh, the, the sort of recklessness they've showed with certain things in Syria, the, the scaling back the sort of de facto, the welfare expenditure system that keeps the population in check, which of course is a, partly a consequence of, uh, of oil prices and everything. But also, like, it's also a consequence of spending that much fucking money on the war. Right. Yes. I mean, there's definitely, always, you know, it's definitely a question of priorities. Yeah. And the thing I kind of find myself thinking with Salman is, like, when I've talked to Saudis, uh, specifically, like, rich, richer Saudis uh, who sort of move in, like, higher educated circles that will rub elbows with princes and shit – they seem to make it out like everyone kind of fucking hates Solomon, that he's reckless, that he's pissing everybody off. I even heard somebody tell me that people who went to school with him say he's, like, nuts, which I don't know about that. He's certainly, like, done some things that are a little uh, stupid. I don't know if he's nuts, but what – do you do you see him, like, continuing unabated or do you see like some major blowback against him within the kingdom or from sort of patron states of Saudi Arabia? So I think the, I mean, the blowback from from patron states isn't going to happen with Donald Trump in the White House, period. Uh, he's just completely committed to this guy for whatever reason. Um, but... I, I, you know, kind of have two minds about this. I think if there's going to be blowback, it's going to happen down the road a little bit after he's become king. Um, what he's done for now, um, as I say, has been like the one thing he's been effective at is cutting out his potential rivals and sidelining them. He took, uh, you know, he was already defense minister. He had his father appoint him minister of defense when. King Salman uh, became king in 2015. Uh, so he controlled the army, um, and then you, you know you have the other two bases as you talked about of military power in the country. You have the Interior Ministry, which was run by uh, Mohammed bin Nayef until June, uh, and you have the National Guard, which was run by Mutab bin Abdullah uh, until a couple of days ago. Um, you know he's moved both of them out fairly, you know, unceremoniously and replace them, I'm sure, with people that he feels comfortable will be loyal to him. Um, so he's consolidated every lever of armed force in Saudi Arabia under his control, which is kind of unheard mm -hmm. of. I mean, you know, as you said, the, those things were deliberately kept separate and not only, you know, organizationally separate, but given to different branches of the family to prevent them from all coming under, you know, coming together under one uh, person or one, one you know, part in one section of the family tree. Um, so I think for now, I mean, it's not clear where or how um, the blowback would come. 
he's still very popular. Um, not certainly. I mean, I I can totally see where he would be very unpopular in educated circles and in you know the circles of power because uh, he's kind of like a bull in a china shop. Um, but among young people, he's very popular. He's you know, because he is himself a young person and you know it's kind of excited the younger generation of of Saudis um i think the the move to uh you know allow women to drive was a big symbolic step that uh you know has i mean it has some real impacts and it's a positive development but it also is very splashy and you know tells people in Saudi Arabia who are eager for some social change that Mohammed bin Salman is their guy. Um, you know, he's talk, you know, this talk about returning Saudi Arabia to moderate Islam, which is so ahistorical, it's beyond belief. Um, That's amazing. But yeah, that was my favorite. It was amazing. And it's amazing that like Western media is just like, it let him get away with it. Basically, they just dutifully reported this. Um, but that's another one. That's another, you know, wink and a nod at younger Saudis who who want to see some change in the kingdom. I, I don't think these people are going to turn on him now. You know, if they did, if they do eventually turn on him, there's you know, there's a place where you could see some some blowback. You could see them gravitate toward you know another royal who opposes all of these changes. Um, but I don't think you'll see the potential for that until the painful parts of the economic reform start to kick in, until people start to lose their um, you know, housing allowances and their guaranteed, virtually guaranteed employment and uh, uh, you know, their college tuition deals and all the, you know, all the things that, um, that people have depended on that have built their lives around that are going to start to go away and be replaced with, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, you know, when that happens, I think the potential for, for blowback will be higher. And certainly at that point, if there is a, you know, increased resentment against his changes, the fact that he's alienated, Probably most of the royal family is not going to going to serve him uh, very well. Yeah, well, um, you know, as we always say at the end of these discussions, look for all the problems to be solved. <laughs> Rex Tillerson, who absolutely gives a shit about his job, is on it. Donald Trump is on it. Jared Kushner is on it. I don't know what solutions we're going to see. Jared Kushner was I, involved in it, apparently, right? He made that trip yeah, that's to That's the Saudi best Arabia. thing. That's yeah, he came there, hilarious. like, what, a week before, and then all this shit happened. Right. I right. I was thinking, like, I almost want, I almost felt bad for the princes who were in hock in the fucking Ritz-Carlton, and I wanted to tell them, if you want to get out of this, just contact Jared and tell him you'll buy 666 Fifth Avenue. You would literally get out tomorrow. It's so easy. (laughs) So easy. That's all he wants. He is going around the world inserting himself in (laughs) multi-generational ethno-religious warfare in every fucking country on earth just so someone will buy the building. Just to sell this one property. Just, Just buy it. Somebody just buy it from him. I think Iran could get a repeat of the Iran deal where they're also allowed to maintain 20 ICBMs. 
if an IRGC shell company just, just bought that the fucking bill, building the property. Yep. But hey, those are those are the people we have on the job. I'm sure it's going to be normal. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Derek, thank you so much. If you guys want to check out more of Derek's work, he's been doing some great stuff about uh, not just the GCC crack up, but the Iranian sort of Iranian elections, Iranian politics, um, a lot of great uh, Niger stuff and other AFCOM shit that's very prescient now, given the weirdness that we've gotten with uh, CENTCOM's activities there. And pretty much everything else you could want. Derek's a great writer. You guys have heard him on here a billion times. And yeah, check out his Patreon that we will link in the episode description. And Derek, thank you so much. Thanks, Felix.